I want you to turn with me over to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Straight talk about leadership. I'm going to give you two words today, two words that will summarize the entire message. However, I do ask you not to leave after I give you those two words. Say, I've got it. I'm out of here. Because there's a whole lot in between, okay? It's sort of like a good deli sandwich. Yeah, you have the bread on either side, but boy, it's the stuff inside that really makes it, right? Two words are this. Character matters. Character matters. What we find in 1 Timothy 3 is straight talk about godly leadership and specifically in the local church. Now, this spills over into all of life, all of society, but specifically in the local church. As we see in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1, it says this, this is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. In light of what we've covered the last couple of weeks about men being the God-ordained leaders that God has given, that's the way he set it up. That is his plan for society, for the church, et cetera, et cetera. Only men, male preachers and so forth. So if the men are to lead the church, then how should they be? It's a good question. It's a fair question, don't you think? Okay, we're good. We'll believe God. Women aren't to lead. Men are to lead. This is the way God set it up. Fine. Okay, then how are men supposed to be? Not every man will end up being an elder in the local church. Okay, and I'll explain these words in just a minute. But the qualities here that we see in 1 Timothy 3 and other places are God's ideals for every man in the church. In other words, if you never become an elder or a deacon here at Northland, it doesn't mean that God doesn't have the same expectations for you as a man, because he does. And I'll repeat myself in the message today, but understand this. These qualities need to be there, need to be there in a man before he's ever considered for position. Do you understand what I'm saying? You don't say, okay, we need you to be an elder in our church. Here's a list of things now. Get with it, okay? We've seen you're really lacking in a lot of areas here. Get with it. Now you got a list. There's no excuse. <laughs> no. Listen, these things, whether you're an elder or a deacon in this church or, or not, it doesn't matter. These things are for you. Let me also say that these are godly qualities we should all strive for as believers when it comes to issues of character. In other words, there are no double standards for those in office and those who are not. This is important to keep in mind. That's not often considered. However, I know this, that there are people who think, I never want to be an elder or a deacon in our church because the requirements are too high. I don't want to live with that kind of a requirement hanging over my head. You're missing the boat. You're missing the will of God, actually. You're missing the will of God. Now, it says here, if any man desire the office of a bishop, the word bishop is the idea of an overseer. It means to look after, okay? It's a public office of being an overseer. When you compare the qualifications in the Bible of a bishop, that word bishop, and an elder, we see that they are virtually identical. Now let me show that to where you, you actually see it. Hold your place in 1 Timothy. Just go a few pages over to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. Paul's writing to Titus. Titus was one of his disciples. 
and Titus was left on the Isle of Crete. Paul said, I need you to stay here on the Isle of Crete. By the way, that's where concrete was invented. No, I'm just kidding. I don't know. Maybe it was. Who knows? But anyways, I mean it as a joke, but who knows if that's true or not. I haven't researched it. For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting or lacking. Now, isn't that interesting? There were people one to Christ. They were meeting together as people, as a group, as a congregation, if you want to call it that. Yet there was something lacking. Okay, now here it is. The things that are wanting or lacking, and what were they? And ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. If any man be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly. For a bishop, again, the same idea as an elder. For a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy Lucre, and then the passage goes on. We're not studying Titus verse by verse, but it is a lot of the things are repeated from what he told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Okay, so let's go back to 1 Timothy chapter 3. By the very nature of what an overseer is, okay, now understand this, folks, because I'm touching on this now because there's some weird ideas out there that basically see the local church as a place to have a free-for-all. And if there's any people who claim to be leaders, for those leaders to require or expect certain things, people love to pull out the L card. Legalist. He's telling me I should do that. He's a legalist. How dare he tell me how I should live my Christian life? Now a person could be if they're overbearing and trying to macromanage people, yeah, I can understand that, okay? But here's the point. Godly leadership will only require of people what's necessary because he understands if they're saved, they have the Holy Spirit living inside and God is working in that life. But however, you do need to set up certain things to have order. That was what was lacking on Crete, by the way, let me say this. This may rub some the wrong way, but if it, you know, rub the cat the fur wrong way, turn the cat around, okay? If you rub the fur the wrong way, turn the cat around. Here's the point. Bible studies are not the same as a local church. God expects us to be part of a local church under, yes, under an order, under authority. Again, not legalistic. Well, wait a minute. God's my authority. We know all that already, okay? We've talked about it how many times in church? Yes, it's God. And then we have with the pastor and the elders and then the deacons and the congregation. And we understand all that. And in eternity, as God sees us in eternity, we're all the same. I get that. But God has an order, just like anything else. He has an order for the home. He has an order for the government. He has an order for, you know, all these different things. And he has an order for the church. And he expects there to be order. And he expects there to be leadership. So if a man is an overseer, what is he doing? He's overseeing something. He has the responsibility of being a superintendent of a type. Somebody who is qualified to lead, a leader. If you have a leader, that means there's followers, right? Doesn't that just make sense? That kind of defines what a leader is. A leader is somebody who leads people, okay? Well, if the people are going to be led, that means they're going to follow that person. 
I shouldn't even have to spend time on this, but people today just don't understand words. And so I'm trying to define these and make it as clear as I can. This has to do with leadership. Somebody who is an overseer, a bishop, an elder, it means that they oversee or manage people and activities that are under them. And the local church needs to have that. But it's a right thing. They might say, well, I don't like that idea because there are people who abuse their power. I get that. I get that. I get that. That's why God has very clear defining principles and requirements of character in the word of God. Because if men don't qualify, they don't have a right to lead. Do you get it? Do we all get it? These are divine checks and balances to the plan of God. It's a beautiful thing, really. It's beautiful. You can see God's handwriting all over it. Now, in Titus 1.5, one of the major things that was lacking in Crete, as I mentioned, is that the believers had no leadership. And so it was Titus's job to appoint leaders in those churches. And so here he goes. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, we're looking at what Paul gave Timothy. Again, they run in beautiful parallel. Okay, there's some differences. We'll cover those in the future, but today we're going to look at this. 1 Timothy 3 verse 2. A bishop, think, overseer, elder, same idea, okay? A bishop then must be blameless, must be blameless. The husband of one wife, vigilant, sober of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt or able to teach. Again, a bishop then must be. You see it? It's a prerequisite. These things are prerequisites to them getting into that office. In other words, these are required beforehand. Now, let me contrast this with a cringeworthy statement that I heard as a new believer. I got saved, and a lot of the churches that I was familiar with, they started as youth ministries, and then the people got older, so they needed a church, and so they were started that way. Well, there was kind of, in some ways, in some circles, not everyone, a very loose idea of who would be an elder who would be a deacon in a church. A new church was started, and it was kind of like, okay, we need leadership. Let's see. We need elders and deacons. The Bible talks about elders and deacons. Now, too bad they didn't read much further, but that's what they would do. And so the standing joke that went around at that time was this. Okay, well, who do we get to be elders and deacons? Okay, well, we'll do it this way. The men who can shave will be elders, and the ones who can't will be deacons. You can just get a big old stamp, and you can just stamp it, disaster, disaster. And folks, I've seen disaster before. Men who were not qualified to be elders in a local church, their families were a mess, their lives were not right. A lot of what they did with their lives, it would cause most Christians to stumble. And yet, because they needed somebody to lead, these people were, they were kind of the best of the worst kind of an idea. Listen, you're better off just to have a pastor. And if he's not qualified, you've got real problems. Now, when we started our church, we were very serious about these things because we'd learn watching bad examples We're very serious about these things, and we did not have elders until we felt we had qualified people to fit those slots. The same thing with deacons. A bishop then must be 
blameless, okay? Now, before we get into the specifics here, let me give you one that goes before any of these. Number one, they need to be saved. It's not in the text, but it is, it's inferred there because they're it's talking about people in tune with God who are walking with God, who are godly. Well, you can't really be godly unless you're already a believer. And so you need to be saved. While it's not mentioned, it's obvious. Only people who are saved, who are true children of God, who have the Holy Spirit inside of them, only those are the people you can have for church leadership. Now, what do we need to be saved? Most of you understand this, but perhaps you might be here today and you say, I don't understand that. Was saved. Saved from what? Okay. Well, let me just be very straightforward with you. Saved from hell. Saved from hell to heaven. Delivered from hell to heaven. In other words, they need to be people who know that they have eternal life and that they're going to heaven. And say, can you know that? Yeah, you can know that. May I explain it to you uh, just briefly here this morning? I like to illustrate it this way. If this represents you and me, this hand, I'm going to let my wallet represent all the things we do wrong. There's a word for that in the Bible. It's called sin. For all have sinned, the Bible says, and fall short of the glory of God. We all come short of it. God loves us, though. He hates our sin, but he loves us. You cannot get to heaven with your sin. It separates you from God. To get to heaven, all your sin has to be gone. Heaven's a perfect place. You can't get there with even one sin. Not only that, but God says, because we've sinned, there's a penalty that goes with that. The wages of sin is death. And that would be eternal separation from God forever. Forever. It's not temporary. It's not purgatory. There's no such thing as purgatory. That's made up. The Bible only knows two things, heaven or hell. When we die, you either go to heaven or hell. Hell is a place of literal conscious torment. God does not want anybody to go there. He provided a way of escape. He provided a way to get to heaven. Most people think the way you get rid of your sin is by doing good works, but that's not what the Bible says. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. We've got it right up here. It'll also project it. Look what it says. It says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, it's not of works, lest any man should boast. It's not of works. You can't earn it. You can't work your sin off. The only payment is death forever in hell. Now here's the choice. You either say, I'm going to do it myself. I will be responsible for my sin. Or you'll accept God's solution for your sin, which is far better. What do you mean? Let me show it to you. Because God loves us so much, hates our sin, but loves us, does not want us to go to hell. He himself, God the Father, sent God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world. This hand representing him. And when he went to the cross... He took our sin and he took all of our sin upon himself and he made the payment for our sin. So we don't have to. That's what he did. Jesus made the payment for our sin. He died, was buried, came back from the dead. And he says in his word that if you will believe, that's what faith is, for by grace you say through faith, if you will believe, if you'll put your faith in him that he made that payment for you, you believe that he has paid for all your sins. It's where you put your faith. The moment you do, he saves you He forgives you of all your sin. He gives you everlasting life. You go to heaven based on what he did for you. The payment he made is good on your behalf. When you believe the payment's good on your behalf, you go to heaven. Why? There's nothing to send you to hell. You have no sin to pay for. Jesus is the one who removes the barrier. 
When you trust him as your savior, all your sin has been taken care of. Thereby you can go to heaven. He gives you everlasting life. He says he'll never lose you, he'll never cast you out. You can know you're going to heaven because he promised it. He's God who can't lie. Isn't that the best news in all the world? It's the best news in all the world. If you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ, do that right now. You might say, well, what if I sin after I believe in Christ? Okay, well, how many of your sins did Jesus pay for when he died on the cross? He paid for all of them, not just what you've done in the past. He did, he paid for everything you're going to do in the future. Now, is it good to live a good life? Yes. Is it good to do good things? Yes. But if you're trusting in yourself to get you to heaven, it's not going to take away your sin. You die with your sin, you'll be lost forever. The only way you can get rid of your sin is by putting your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior. And when you trust in him, he saves you, he gives you everlasting life. So if you haven't trusted Christ, put your faith in him right now, this moment, okay? So getting back to our text, the person, the overseer, the elder, the bishop, must be saved. But secondly, it says this in verse Two, a bishop then must be blameless. Now, the word blameless doesn't mean perfect. It means above reproach, above reproach. Okay, again, it does not mean sinlessly perfect. If that was the case, no one would ever be qualified because none of us are sinlessly perfect as we live. You know, we make mistakes and so forth, but God says we need to be above reproach. It literally means nothing to take hold of. Beyond justified criticism, if someone launches an attack on you, it basically falls to the ground because it's proven not to be true. It doesn't stick because that person's not really that way. Can I tell you this? It means that he has consistent godly character. Not perfect, but consistent godly character. This is not the same, by the way, as a popularity contest. Unfortunately, today, many people get into office in local churches through a popularity contest. That guy's a former athlete. He's tall. He's handsome. He's got charisma. That's what we need in leadership in this church. We need people with charisma. You know, the last time I read the Bible, it doesn't say charisma anywhere. Well, they're just this. No, 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 no. This is not a popularity contest. Well, I want so-and-so on the board. Uh, Is it because he's your brother? See what I'm saying? Can I tell you this, folks? Churches, there's a lot of churches that are that shallow when it comes to church leadership. And that's a disaster, and it's a recipe for disaster. We are trying to protect the local church. Blameless, really, in itself, covers all the other qualifications we are going to look at. If a man is blameless, he certainly won't be out of line in the other areas we are going to look at. Blameless is like a banner over the entire passage. A man needs to be blameless, okay? Blameless. Not perfect, but blameless. He's above reproach. You might say, what if people accuse him of things, okay? Do you believe this? That's in chapter 5. It says, okay, if you're going to accuse an elder of anything, we've got the way you do that. We'll get to that. We're not covering it today. You're in 1 Timothy. Look, though, to chapter 6 for just a moment. It says this, 1 Timothy 6, verse 14. You get another flavor of the word blameless in 1 Timothy 6, 14. It says that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable. See the word unrebukable? 
Unrebukable is the same Greek word as what you see in chapter 3 where it says blameless. The exact same word. So you can't rebuke him for something and that charge sticks. In other words, it's false accusations against leadership. And that happens all the time. Well, not all the time, but occasionally it does. So let's move on back to chapter 3. For a man, a bishop then must be blameless. The next one, the husband of one wife. The husband of one wife. Now here is the key to the passage. And I've studied this and studied this and studied this. The emphasis here in this passage, believe it or not, when it comes to this, is the word one. All right? Remember, he must be, number one, he must be a man. This does not say that he must be married. Some people interpret it this way. Or it would read the husband of a wife. It says more than that. It doesn't say the husband of a wife. Paul, by the way, was not the husband of a wife. No, it's the husband of one wife. However, I... I do believe that a married man can much better relate to and counsel people on the issues of marriage better any day than a single man can because he does not understand the dynamics of marriage. But here's what it's getting at. I do believe that a married man, well, I've I've mentioned it, but let me just put it another way, okay? How do you talk about family issues with children if you've never been married and you've never had a family. You have no clue. Well, I read a book. Well, that's okay if it's a good book, but listen, it's not the same as having your own. It's not the same of relating things to people to where they really get a handle on what you're getting at. So experience is a good thing. The husband of one wife, it is good for a man to be married. But if you're married, it better just be to one woman Some would translate this, and by the way, I agree with this, looking at the words, if you dig into this and look at the the way this is structured in Greek, it's emphasizing this, a one-woman man. It's what it's saying, a one-woman man. Actually, the word man, the word husband, just simply means man. A one-woman man, all right? So this is what he's emphasizing. In other words, here's what it's getting at, folks. Now remember, he needs to be blameless. What does that have to do with? It has to do with his character as an individual. He's faithful to his wife. He's not an adulterer. He's not a womanizer. And obviously, he's not a polygamist. He's a one-woman man. And by the way, guys, let me say this, and I teach this at our Men of God Bible study on this, that also means in your heart Because a man can be a one-woman man in his life. In other words, he stays married, but on the side, in secret, he's into pornography or he's into lust or all these kind of things in his heart. Remember, Jesus said, if you look on a woman to commit fornication with her, you've done it in your heart. That's serious stuff. That's serious stuff. Pornography is epidemic today. And how many leaders have I heard of, spiritual leaders, quote-unquote, who have fallen, who have disqualified themselves even in the last year because of sexual sin. God says you're disqualified if you're that way. You're out. You're out. Okay? The issue in this passage in 1 Timothy is not a long exposition on marriage, divorce, and remarriage today. We've covered that in our study in Corinthians. I covered it years ago in Matthew, I believe in Mark, and also in Luke, if I'm not mistaken. 
1 Corinthians 7 is a key passage on the whole issue of marriage, divorce, remarriage. You can go and you can listen to the messages on that. That's not what this is about today. What Timothy, what Paul is getting at with Timothy is this. The man has to be blameless. He has to be a one-woman individual. If he's married, his focus is on his wife. It's not on other women or any of that. He's pure is the idea. So the emphasis is not here on a long exposition on this issue, but the importance of a blameless testimony before the church and the world. The point of the passage is that he is blameless in character. He's a one-woman man. He's faithful to his wife. If he's married, he's faithful to his wife. If he's not married, then he's not faithful to any woman. Let's move on. Vigilant. Vigilant means temperate. He is consistent in his character. Now, let me just throw something in here. I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't do it, but I'm just going to do it. I know some people say he's avoiding the issue of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. No, I've already told you where to go to find out what we believe on that. But I will say this because it needs to be said. And I know there's some Christians who have a hard time with this. And that's unfortunate. Let's say a man is married and divorced and then he gets saved. Okay. Is he qualified? Can he be? Can he be? If he's right, if he's pure, if he's blameless. Oh, and then he gets married again after he's saved. They say, what about that, Pastor? What about that? Okay. I don't have a problem with it. Oh, I have a problem with it. Oh, okay. So what you're telling me is this. He could be a serial murderer, but if he gets saved, that's okay. But if he was married, divorced, and remarried, that's not forgivable as far as him. No, wait a minute. God says when you believe you're justified from all things, from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. God forgives every sin, every sin. Yes, did he have failure in his past? Yes. Let me ask you a question today. Would any of you here today, including those of you in church leadership, have you failed? Have you failed since you're saved? Listen, it's a whole nother issue of whether a man, once he's saved, if he gets divorced and wants remarried and then church leadership, that's a whole nother issue. And that's not what we're dealing with today. What we are dealing though is this issue in the passage is that he is a one woman man. He's blameless in character. Okay. What's happened before the cross is before the cross. God has forgiven everything. You're a new creature in Christ. You have a new position. You've been born again. You have a new life. Everything is past. All right. Vigilant means temperate. He is consistent in his character. Vigilant and sober, by the way, go hand in hand. He knows how to keep his cool. There is self-control. Many of these qualities, by the way, overlap. A person who can't control himself and is soon angry is often self-focused as an individual. That's a problem in church leadership or has a tendency to fall into that mode. The next one, sober. The word has to do with sober-minded. It's not so much having to do with drinking. We think today, we hear the word sober, you immediately think of alcohol. No, we'll deal with that in just a minute. Sober-minded means self-control. It means moderate. In other words, he is discreet. He makes sound judgment. He takes the time to think things through. He takes the time to think things through. It's not knee-jerk reaction. Boy, that gets anybody into trouble. And when you're dealing with church problems, the last thing you need is a knee-jerk reaction to something. 
Titus 2.2 says that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity or love, and impatient. And there in Titus 2, it's not even talking about church leadership. It's just talking about the older men. You see the requirements that God puts on older men in the body of Christ are no really not much different at all than that what he expects of leadership. Why? Because the qualities have to be that before they can be a leader. See, God has high expectations on all of us who are saved. That's not where the problem is. The problem is with us. So he's sober. He's sober-minded, self-controlled. He is mature. Can I tell you that? He's mature. That's why it's difficult And a lot of churches do it. They'll have some guy who just got out of Bible college and they'll make him an elder in the church. Now, I'm not saying that can never work, but I'm saying, though, that can be problematic because they don't have the experience, whether it's life experience or ministry experience, to do that. He's mature. He listens more than he talks. Those of you who are a little older, you know the value of that, don't you? He listens more than he talks. People who are always talking are oftentimes lacking wisdom. Have you noticed? He knows when to talk and when not to talk. I have found that as I get older, I do more listening and less talking. It's proven to be very helpful. Being a good listener is vital to truly helping people. And for anybody I counsel, and you know how it goes if any of you have ever asked or sought counsel before, You know, the first part of our talk is always me asking you, so what's going on? What's happening? And then I listen, and I have a notepad there, and I write down things and just different things that I don't want to forget as we're going through and get an idea of what's happening instead of telling you how to fix it before I really know what's going on. That doesn't make sense. See, Proverbs 29, 11 is kind of humorous. A fool utters all his mind but a wise man keepeth it in till afterwards. A fool utters all his mind. You know what that, kind of, kind of humorous. If you utter all your mind on one person, you've got nothing left for anybody else. Wise people have come to grips with the reality that maybe God has given us two ears and one mouth for good reason. Be a good listener. Good leaders are good listeners. They listen to the people they're leading because they want to be careful that they treat them properly and in a right way. Are they perfect? They're not perfect. Nobody's perfect. But you know what, folks? If you make a mistake, you go back and you fix it. And you say, you know what? I blew that. I'm really sorry for that. Will you please forgive me? That's the way it should be, right? Here's another one. Number six of good behavior. Orderly is the idea. Cosmios is the Greek word. Believe it or not, it is the same one used in 1 Timothy 2.9, where it says women, their clothing needs to be modest. Okay? It's, the idea is humility, good behavior. It means properly arranged. I believe self-discipline also fits in here. He has a consistent walk and lifestyle. He does not live on the fly. And by the way, when you are in the Word of God, paying attention to it and applying it, that is the fruit of that. God will bring stability to the life. Here's another one, given to hospitality. Philoxenos is the, is the word. That sounds funny, okay? A lover of strangers. Xenos is strangers. Philo is brotherly kindness or kind to strangers. You help people feel welcome. You're kind to them. You're friendly to them. Fond of guests, hospitable. One source says generous to guests. Generous to guests. Here's another one. Apt to teach. It means able to teach. Now, this doesn't necessarily, now listen, 
Nowhere does it say able to teach means gifted to teach. Giftedness is one thing. Ability to do it is another. And what am I getting at? Do I believe there are spiritual gifts? Yes, I do. And I can look around and I can go around the room here today. And some of you, I can tell you where you are gifted by God, where your spiritual gift is according to scripture. But let's say for an example, somebody is, uh, they are, have the gift of helps. Well, does that mean if you're not gifted in that area, you never help anybody? What a rotten world we'd live in, right? Some people are gifted in certain areas. My place in the body of Christ, I'm not an evangelist. Does that mean that God doesn't hold me responsible to share the gospel? I'm not gifted. You know, Dr. Arnold is an evangelist. There's an evangelist, right? He's an amazing man. He's gifted in that area. I think I fit into the body as a pastor, but that doesn't mean I don't do all the other things that God wants his children to do. Given to hospitality, apt to teach. Again, doesn't necessarily mean you're gifted, but able. This, of course, would also include being teachable. Able to teach and teachable. Why do I say that? Because you can't lead someone where you haven't been yourself. Okay? Leaders know the way, go the way, and show the way. That's what they do. Okay, 1 Timothy 3, verse 3. It says, not given to wine. Not given to wine. No striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous. It's where it says, not given to wine. Literally, literally, it means staying near the wine. Staying near the wine. Now, let me say this, and maybe some of you would disagree with this, but I challenge you on it today. I want you to think about what you're about to hear. I don't think it's wise for Christians to drink any alcohol at all. It's not wise. The Bible makes it clear that we are not to drink the fruit of the vine when it has turned alcoholic to where it dulls the senses. I've heard more people say, nowhere in the Bible does it say not to drink alcohol. Really? You must not ever study any timeless principles from the book of Proverbs. Hold your place. Go there with me right now. Proverbs chapter 23. Let me just do a silly example here, okay? Let's say I said to Haley, Haley, don't look at the Christian flag over here on the platform. Okay? If I said don't look at it, does that mean you can look at it occasionally, just not all the time? What does don't look at it mean? Don't look at it, right? Don't look at it. Not, well, don't look at it a lot. No, don't look at it. Now, that's a silly illustration, but it fits. Because look at what it says in Proverbs 23 29. Who hath woe? Who hath sorrow? Who hath contentions? Who hath babblings. I love that one. Okay. (laughs) Who hath wounds without cause? How did I get that bruise? Are you getting the picture? Who has redness of eyes? They that tarry long at the wine, they that go to seek mixed wine. Well, see, pastor, it says those who tarry long at the wine. It started somewhere. Verse 31, in case you're confused, Look not thou upon the wine when it is red, when it is giveth its color in a cup, when it moves itself aright or swirls around. At the last it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. 
God says, don't look at the wine when it has gotten to an alcoholic state. Don't look at the wine. Now, folks, this was back then more natural process. Today, it's manufactured. You know that. It's manufactured to include a certain level of buzz, if I can call it that, on purpose. God says, don't even look at it. Now, how clear is that? Well, he doesn't mind us looking at it. He doesn't mind us drinking it as long as we don't get drunk. Well, I beg to differ with you. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1 says this, Wine is a mocker. Strong drink is raging, and whosoever is deceived thereby is not wise. Wine is a mocker. It doesn't say after five glasses, five shots, six cans of beer, It says, wine is a mocker. Who is it mocking? It's mocking God because God says, don't fool around with it. It mocks God in what is right and true. It produces brawling. Is there anybody who wants to argue that point? It produces brawling. If you are led astray by it, the Bible says you're not wise. This is true because God says so, folks. But let me just mention a few statistics today. In 2022, these are recent Drunk drivers killed 28 people every day in the United States. Now, before anybody, hopefully no one in this room would say, well, 28's not bad with all the millions that we have. If it was your child or your husband or your wife, you wouldn't think that way. Killed by a drunk driver. In other words, if they weren't drunk, they wouldn't have killed your relative if they weren't drunk. And by the way, they weren't drunk the first drink they had. In 2022, drunk drivers killed 28 people every day in the United States. That's 840 every month. That's 10,080 every year. That's in 2022 in the U.S. That's also an average of 1.2 an hour. Well, that's not many. It won't happen to my family. How do you know that? According to alcoholaddictioncenter.org, And I carefully looked at it. They don't have an agenda. They're just reporting the facts. Alcohol lowers one's inhibition and impairs one's judgment. According to the Department of Justice, there are 2 million convicted criminals currently in jail. Of those, 37% report that they were drinking at the time of their arrest. 37%. Wouldn't it have just been easy not to drink at all? Chances are they wouldn't have gotten into that. The data also shows that alcohol plays a role in 40% of all violent crimes. 40%. You tell me whether it's a big deal or not. It's a big deal. See, here's wisdom. You'll never become an alcoholic if you never take your first drink. Don't look on the wine when it swirls around the cup and it bites. And if you think it's okay, you're mocking God. That's what the Bible says. That's what the Bible says. Now, I know there are churches, verse-by-verse, Bible-believing churches, and here's what they teach in those churches. It's okay for the people in the church to drink, just not the leadership. What in the world? Where do you get your leadership from? The people in the church. They come up and they grow and they become the right, right? That's where you pick them from. You don't import them. So then again, do you wait until, okay, well, hey, We want you to be an elder. Stop your drinking. Is that how it works? Makes no sense to me. 
makes no sense to me. We won't get through everything today. Let me just close with this issue on the drinking. A couple subpoints. First is this. It is a bad testimony. Years ago, we had a church in St. Cloud area. I won't tell you which one it was. They were a dispensational church. They were doctrinally sound, pretty much, okay? The pastor believed in verse-by-verse preaching and, and so on and so forth. He left, another one came. He left, another one came, etc. Over somewhere in that transition period, they voted as a church that the elders in the church could drink alcohol. That's what they voted. I heard that and I'm thinking, it's not up to you. God's the one who gave you the qualifications here. Anyways... It is a bad testimony. Even the world associates drinking with ungodliness. You know that. We all know that. Why would Christians want to defend such a thing? Secondly, it makes people stumble. And I don't mean you can't walk straight. I'm talking about it's offensive. And people, by the way, who struggle with alcohol, if they find you drink, especially if you're a leader in the church and they find you drink, they have a problem with that. They may never say it. But it's going to be hard for them to follow your leadership. Romans 14, 21, Paul said, It's good neither to eat flesh nor to drink wine, nor anything whereby thy brother stumbleth or is offended or is made weak. Third, there's no way that it glorifies God. No way. Now listen, some of these things are hard today, but this is what the Bible says. I think it's clear in Scripture. I don't think there's any question about it. I want to just challenge you, dear friend, and urge all of us that we would, as Mark so beautifully sang today, just bow the knee. Bow the knee. Let's quit making excuses for wrong behavior. Let's bow the knee. Trust the Lord. He'll provide all the grace we need to walk and live the Christian life. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, let today be your day of salvation to where you get delivered forever from hell to heaven. How great is that? Well, friends, that concludes this edition of Voice of Assurance. Thanks so much for listening. And would you share this ministry with a friend? To contact us or learn more about our ministry, please visit www.northlandchurch.com. Your prayers and support for this ministry are greatly appreciated. Thank you so much, and God bless you.